Literally, the Christ, the Messiah, is none other than this man, Jesus. Um, who is a man, and we're going to see, more than only a man this morning. Um, just by way of review, what do you, re- you remember from last week, if you were here with us? Talk about the purpose statement of the book, for it that you might believe. Um, what are some applications we drew from that? Disciples believed, they saw what they saw, they saw the risen Christ, and therefore they believed. But we have what is written, and the point we made last week because we have just a sufficient basis, and there's just as much reason for us to believe based on what is written <coughs> as much as what they behold with their eyes. Because many behold Christ by sight, they didn't see him, they didn't believe him. In other words, what faith is is it's a beholding, it's an awareness, it's a seeing the glory of Christ. And you can't see that with your physical eyes. You have to see it by faith. First eyewitnesses in us now, and his glory is revealed through the scriptures. And so we said that John is writing for the purpose of evangelism, so that you might believe. But as we work through the Gospel of John, and we're going to see this morning, you cannot separate initial belief from belief that continues. It's written for us so that we might continue to believe, so that we might go deeper and grow in this thing called faith, this beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we're after. And we concluded with some quotes by John Owen that told us how essential it is to behold the glory of Christ now. Because um, that's what it's going to be in, in heaven. Um, this is preparation. So that's what we're after in this series in John, that we would believe. That we would see the glory of Christ as he's displayed here. And that we would believe more and more in him. So this morning I invite you to turn with me to John 1. We're going to be in what is called the prologue to the book of John. John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And we're going to be in this section this week and next. Um, this week we're going to be on the first half. And next week we'll do the second half of this introduction. And uh, just like last week, the, the, the summary verse, if we try to unpack that verse and all of its parts, we'd be unpacking the whole Gospel of John. Well, that applies equally to this introduction. If we were to go through this introduction and unpack every bit of it, we would need the whole Gospel of John to do it. John has condensed and crystallized his Gospel here in these 18 verses we're going to look at. So we're in the prologue. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. So let me go ahead and pass out the outline to you. And uh, then we'll read while you're passing it out. And just uh, just a word about the outline. I give it for a couple reasons. First, so you can follow along the basic flow of thought. Um, I know we cover a lot of territory. But it's also so that you can have something tangible to take with you and you can review. Um, I know you're probably not going to be able to jot everything down, but I want you to... The salient points and the uh, some of the meat to take home and, and chew on for review. So let's begin. As you're passing it out, I'm going to begin reading verse one through 
13 of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a man sent from God. His name is John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born so that is the first half of this prologue, and I've titled it Two Scenes Which Summarize the Person and Work of Jesus Christ. That is what is happening in these 18 verses. John gives us two scenes in which he crystallizes who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. And this morning we're going to look at the first scene. The Word enters his creation. The Word enters his creation. What happens when the word of God comes into his creation? That's what we're going to see. So we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 3 at the pre-existence of this word. The pre-existence of the word. How do all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin? Where do they begin their gospels? They either begin with the account of Jesus' birth or with John the Baptist. And those are very appropriate places because that is experientially where the ministry of Christ begins. The person of Jesus, the man of Jesus begins. But John doesn't begin there. John wants to take us back to the very beginning. To the ultimate start of the gospel. We know Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, proclaimed by John the Baptist, but he did not begin there. John wants to highlight his identity from the start. He did not begin at his birth. So look at what he says, the very first line. In the beginning was the word. So what do you think about immediately that phrase, in the beginning? You think of Genesis 1. And the Greek is identical to the Greek and of um, Greek translation of Genesis. In the beginning. We read in Genesis, in the beginning, God. And John says here, in the beginning was the Word. The meaning is that before any of creation took place in Genesis 1, the Word was already existing. You could translate it, in the beginning, the Word was already existing there. Just as God the Father had no starting point, the Word had no starting point. There was no time at which the Word, the pre-incarnate Son of God, had a beginning. It was just simply there, ultimate reality. And we don't have time this morning just to chew on it, but go home and think about 
eternity, eternal being. None of us, no thing had a had existence that never began. We all had a starting point. The Son of God was there forever. Blows your mind. It's eternal. So that's his identity. That's how John begins his identity. But before we move on, we need to talk about this word, the word. Why does John call him the word? Um, and who is he referring to? Well, after we read the whole Gospel of John, and especially even just these 18 verses, it's crystal clear the word is none other than the Son of God, the one who became the man, Jesus Christ. Um, but why does he call him the word? And there's been a lot of ink spilled if you go reading uh, commentaries and everything on the background of the word and what, what is in John's mind when he writes the word. Um, but I think as we see John's gospel, John is richly using the Old Testament throughout his gospel. And I think the Old Testament is the background to this word, the word. I think that's what John's is in John's Mind. And why that's important is because it helps us to see what he means by it. So what does John mean by calling him the Word? Well, as we think about the Old Testament, the Word of God did many things, right? Probably the most central of it, what did God's Word do? It communicated, it revealed the person and character and will of God. We also see in the Old Testament the Word is the agent that accomplished God's Decrees. It was the agent in creation. Genesis 1. How did God create? He said, he spoke, let there be light. In the Old Testament, the word of God is his agent which executes his salvation and judgment. And so I think John is saying that just as God's spoken verbal word in the Old Testament was the means of God's self-disclosure, the agent of God's creation the agent who carried out God's decrees, in the same way the pre-existent Son of God is the ultimate, is the true, the final word of God. Because he fully, perfectly images the character of God. Because he is God's sent revelation to mankind. Because he's the ultimate agent in creation. And he's the one who will finally completely carry out God's purposes of salvation and judgment. So I think that is what John's using. He's saying, just like the Word of God, little w, Old Testament, in the same way, capital W, Word of God, the Word of God, the ultimate, true, self-disclosure of God, is who he's talking about, is Jesus. And the point we're making here is that this Word that we just described didn't have a beginning. He was already existing in the beginning, before creation. And then John takes us a step further. He says he's not only in the beginning, but he was eternally with God. Now what does that mean? Um, the first thing that stands out is that the word is distinct from God. Because he was with God. The word is from eternity a unique, distinct person. Person, not in the sense of a human being, but in the sense of an identity. A being. He was also with God. That is to say, he was in a personal, close, intimate relationship with God. Drop your eyes down to verse 18. John sort of bookends this whole section with this same idea. 
says no one has ever seen God, but the only God who's in the bosom of the Father. It's an intimate word, close relationship of the word with God the Father. I don't know what you think about when you think about God and eternity past, but this verse shows us that God was not lonely. He wasn't bored. He wasn't needy. He was an enjoyable, perfect, happy fellowship within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, enjoying intimate fellowship. So this line tells us the Word is eternal, but He was eternally distinct, distinguishable from God the Father in an intimate relationship with God the Father. And then now John takes us to the mountain peak that we've been climbing, okay? This is the final statement. The word who is already existing as a distinct person is none other than God himself. John says, and the word was God. And if I had an extra hour uh, to spend with you guys and I wasn't afraid of putting you to sleep, I would try to show you how John's grammar here is the most concise, clearest way he could have expressed this statement. To highlight that Christ is, possesses everything it is to be God, and yet not denying God the Father's existence, and not saying that there is, he's just another God among others. It is masterful how John says it. On the one hand, he avoids saying that God was the Word. That's not true. God is not the Word. The Word does not exhaust the person of God. There's more to God than the Word. There's God the Father and God the Spirit. So he doesn't say God is the Word. That wouldn't be true. And on the other hand, he avoids saying that the Word was a God, which Arian, uh, not Arianism, but other false um, heresies, Jehovah's Witnesses would be one. He was a God. But the translation is very improbable in Greek. And again, we don't have time, obviously, to go into it. But John chooses the clearest expression. He avoids saying there's three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That would be a denial of the whole Old Testament that says there is one God. In this phrase, John tells us that the word is not part of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. All, all our parts combined together make God. That's not true. He's God. Fully. Himself. And nor is he another God, but he is very God, very God, possessing all that it means to be God. That is the word. And yet he doesn't exhaust the being of God. He was also with God. Clearly speaking of the Father. One Greek grammarian, Daniel Wallace, said this construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the word was God and yet distinct from the Father. And this is not a lesson on the Trinity, although I was tempted to make it one. Um, but it's so important that we understand the biblical teaching on this. It's nuanced. It's hard. I can't wrap my mind around it. None of us can. And yet we have clear teaching in the scripture that we must embrace. Heresies all throughout church history have denied parts of this doctrine of the Trinity. Which states three things. Number one, God existed eternally in three persons. 
He doesn't just manifest himself sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Father, eternally three persons. Each person is fully God. There's just one God. Can you understand that? No. Can you illustrate it? No. <laughs> All the illustrations, the egg, the apple, fall short. They're heresies if you use them. Don't use illustrations. Can't understand it. Yeah, this is what Scripture proclaims, and we must embrace it by, by faith. So that is the identity of the Word. But let's move on quickly here to the preexistent Word and see His creatorship in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, John does not say that the Word made all things. What does he say? He say all things, what, were made, what does he say? Through him. In other words, John is not saying that the Father had no role in creation. God the Father had a role in creation, and he did his creative work through the Son. We say the Son is the agent, God's agent, who carries out the will and purposes of God in creation. And you see this in Hebrews 1, verse 2, and Colossians 1, 15 through 16. It was through the Son that God created everything. Again, think back to Genesis 1. How did God create? It was with his verbal word. And John is saying, in a much deeper sense, it was ultimately through the ultimate word, Christ. And John is telling us that, takes us a step further and he says he didn't just create some things, it was everything. Last line could be translated, and not even one thing which has been made was made apart from him. There's not one thing in the universe that owes its existence to something other, someone other than the sun, which clearly excludes the sun from being created. There's not one thing of all that's been created that was created apart from the sun's agency. That's a lot there, and I encourage you to chew on it. So what's the application? Meditate. Worship him for this. See his glory in this. Behold him here. And all of that prepares us and points us to this next point John has in verses 4 through 9, the revelation of the word. Just glance down through these verses, verses 4 to 9. What is the key word? that occurs over and over in these, in these verses. What is it? Light. Light! It's over and over and over again. And in the Gospel of John, and really throughout the Bible, light is a symbol of revelation. God's Word is often called the light. It exposes reality. It reveals God. And that is why we call this section the revelation of the Word. The one who we just saw, the Word will be revealed to mankind. And in verses 4 to 5, it's prefigured in creation. Look what it says. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. And it's really hard to nail down what these verses are referring to. Is it referring to the first creation, looking back to verse 3, or is it looking forward to the new creation? which began at his incarnation. 
following verses. And I'd say it is both. John is very masterful. He can be very ambiguous to make sort of two points at the same time. So that's why we say he's prefigured in creation. Verse 4 says that in him was life. That is, he possessed eternal life. He is self-existent. He didn't get his life from anywhere other than himself. And therefore, he's the source of life. He's the overflow of life. And that was true in the first creation. Everything that came into being was the overflow of his life. John says that in him was life, and that life was light for mankind. And what does that mean? His life was light. His life was light for mankind. Let's apply it to the first creation. First creation, it means out of the overflow of his life came the creation of light, which became the light for man. That's a prefigure for something, right? In him was life, and in the incarnation, he didn't just create light. What happened? He became light. So I think John is saying something like this. The life of God that would shine on mankind is coming through the word. God's eternal life will now be revealed. It will be put on public display to mankind through the incarnation of Christ. But that mention of mankind triggers another thought in John's mind. That is darkness. Look at verse 5. It says it was the light of men. He thinks of darkness immediately. The light shines into the darkness. The first act of creation was light shining into darkness, right? It's the first thing. If darkness was on the face of the deep, Genesis 1-2. And so it will be in the coming of the word of God. In John, darkness always has the meaning of that which is evil, that which is opposed to God. And so I think John is saying that the light, this revelation of the eternal life of God, was revealed to blind, darken humanity, the human race. And then look at that last line in verse 5. The darkness has not grasped it. Now, do your translation say anything different? The darkness hasn't grasped it. What does your translation say? Comprehended. What was the other? Understood. Overcome. Good. Any others? This is another one of those ambiguous words of John, which I think he has a double meaning. I think it means both of those. It can have this sense of arresting or overpowering, and it can have this idea of understanding and comprehending. That's why I like the word grasp. Because in English, grasp can have both of those meanings. You grasp something with your hand, and you grasp something intellectually. I think that's what John is saying here. He's saying, on the one hand, darkness was no match for the light. It couldn't hinder it. Light penetrates the darkness. It couldn't stop it. And on the other hand, it couldn't comprehend it. The nature of darkness, blindness of man, is so contrary to the light of God, it doesn't get it. They're, they're at odds with one another. Despite divine light and life coming, mankind is spiritually unable to grasp the glory and the truth of this light. And they're unable to physically hinder 
the coming of this light. And did dark mankind try to hinder the light? They absolutely did. They tried to kill it. And what happened? They only made it the light put on even more glorious display on the cross. You can't hinder it. It's coming into the world. Man can't grasp it. And he can't grasp it. That's what John says. Look at verses 6 to 8, John. The announcement of John the Baptist. Let's move quickly through these verses so we can look at the final few. They are very significant. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You read this, you think, well, that is very random. Why stick John the Baptist here? There's a few reasons, but I think because John the Baptist experientially was the bridge between the pre-incarnate word, Son of God, and his arrival and his ministry to the world. And so that's how John puts it here. He's the bridge. And his function is to put point backwards to who he was before his coming and to what he came to accomplish. But I want to zoom into that phrase, so that all would believe in him. That's the primary purpose he came. And in a very real sense, all of us in this room and everybody in history who's ever come to believe in the Messiah has done so in part on the basis of the testimony of John the Baptist. He's in every single gospel. And he is one of the witnesses to Christ. So we're going to go through the gospel of John. The witnesses are very <laughs> important. And John the Baptist is one of them. But... John says he was not the light. He was a pointer to the light. Look at verse 9 now. The word invades the world. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John calls him the true light. John the Baptist was not the light, but he was a light. Now get this, okay? Jesus even calls John the Baptist a light. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, he says John was a light. And then if you look at the Old Testament, we see that Torah and wisdom and the prophets are all called lights. So you think back to Proverbs. We studied there over and over. It says the, the wisdom, the instruction is a lamp and the teaching is of light. The idea, it exposes reality to us. It reveals the character of God and the will, his will to us. And you think about light. Light is what? It communicates life. Think if we don't have the sun for a day, what's going to happen? We're, we're gone. We're dead. In the same word, the revelation of God communicates his life to man. That is what is going on here. And so John says that the word is the true light. He's not saying that John the Baptist is now a false light and the Old Testament is false light. But he's saying he's true light in the sense he's the ultimate light. He's the fulfillment of light. He's the light that all those light pointed to the light that the Old Testament anticipated. He is the full disclosure of God to man. He's the true light. And look at this word. Why do I say he invaded the world? The ESV says that it enlightens everyone. Does your translation say anything different? In verse 9, it enlightens every man. That's pretty universal translation. It's literally he shines on all man. And again, this word can have that intellectual component. I think it's better. It shines on all man. Not merely enlightens, but the idea of it, it shines on and it exposes.
exposes all mankind, every person without exception. In other words, from this point on, every person in salvation history will be defined by how they respond to this life. Their destiny will be determined by how they respond to this life. You cannot escape this light, is what he's saying. It shines on every man. In the revelation of the Son of God become man, you can't escape him. He's invaded time and space that we live in and all must respond. You will respond, is John's point. Which leads us to the very next section, verses 10 to 13. How will this world respond? Light comes. It's decisive. Everybody's got to respond to him. But how will we respond to this true disclosure of the person of God to mankind? Verses 10 to 13 give us two responses. And there's only two. There's not three. There's not four. There's two responses to this word. Look at verse 10 through 11. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What does that mean? They didn't know him. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This word world is used four times, and it's always negative. It's almost always negative in the Gospel of John. The world is not just this earth that we live in. It's this system of humanity that is in rebellion against its creator. He came to his own, and they didn't receive him. Well, why didn't they receive him? Because they're in darkness. They're blind. They don't see his glory. John tells us this ignorance is, is culpable. It's punishable. Think about a blind person. If light is shining on the blind person and they don't believe, are they responsible for that? Well, well, no. How can you expect a blind person to believe? But in John, the Gospel of John, blindness is not a physical condition. It's a spiritual condition. Men are blind by their love of other things. It's guilty. But look at the very last point, the reception. Not everybody rejects him. Not everybody embraces him with love and with faith. Verses 12 and 13. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of flesh, nor of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. So some of these people who belong to this dark, rebellious, blind world do believe. They do receive. And this is significant. Pay attention if you haven't heard anything to this point. Why do some actually respond to him? If this world is dark, if this world is enslaved to sin, the world is in rebellion to God, how is it that some people believe? Where do these people come from? Is the question. Look at verse 12. What is this thing called belief? It says, to as many as received him. John is from the start showing us what true faith is. It's not just, yeah, I believe that stuff about Jesus. It is a loving, it's an embracing, a receiving of all that he is. Not just, yeah, give me forgiveness of sins, but his whole person and his whole work. Everything he is. We receive it, embrace it, love it. That's what John is after. But how in the world does a rebellious world do that? Who does that? Where do these people come from? Look at verse 13. It is a God-produced response. And they are not from. John gives us four froms. And they're all source words. Where does it come from? It's number one. It's not from blood. It's not a bloodline. 
If there was a bloodline, it would be the Jewish race, and most of them rejected him. This is not a certain race of people that is more inclined to receive Christ. Nor is it of the will of the flesh. Yes, you make a choice in salvation, but ultimately it was not your choice. Your will is enslaved. Where does this response come from? It wasn't the will of a father or a husband. This birth is totally different. There's no human explanation for this faith, in other words. There's one factor, and it's that they were born of God. Notice that they were born of God. Listen, it's the result. It's not the result. It's the cause of faith. Why are you born again? God did. Why do you believe? You were born again. That is where these people who believe and receive Christ came from. And notice to all who experienced such birth and responded this way, look what they were given. They've given the right to become children of God. And that summarizes everything in this book. Eternal life. The love the Father has for his Son, he has for these children. It's amazing. So that was a lot um, there. And there's a lot more there. Take it home, meditate on it. But that's what happens when the word, the self-disclosure of God, the ultimate disclosure of God enters his creation. He exposes. And some receive him gladly. The only reason they do is that something happened to them prior. They were born of God. And the rest reject him. So that is how John begins. And next week we're going to see verses 14 to 18. The word reveals God's glory. Which that is an amazingly rich section. So we are out of time. It's 1016. Any closing thoughts, um, questions, comments? Yes. Um, it's kind of a side point. Um, you had mentioned earlier that uh, Jesus is the word and he spoke everything in the Um What the significance is in Genesis 2-7 where God forms man out of dust instead of speaking of the Um. Yeah, so I think, uh, so you see, so that, that, that really takes you to the discussion of Genesis 1 and 2, how, that, how those chapters are working. Um, yeah, I don't know if I want to get into the discussion. I think Genesis 2, Genesis 2 is zooming into Genesis 1, in that, one, in that six day of creation. And yet he spoke everything to an existence. And now Genesis 2 is sort of zooming in and showing the, the intimate work of God in forming man in a different way than he formed everything else. Um, so, yeah, he spoke and his word was decisive. Um, and at the same time, you think of God, he speaks of his hands, but we know God doesn't have hands. Those are what we call anthropomorphisms. They're, they're illustrations of physical features we have to represent God, God's person. So I think the best way to understand Genesis 2 is a zooming in to that six day of creation and showing God's intimate work in it before me. Does that make any sense? So, yeah. I don't, it doesn't deny is speaking, it's just uh, adding more information, I guess you could say. There are questions? Comments? Applications? Yeah. When it said that unbelievers, it's like they have a veil over their eyes, so that's probably why they won't then receive him and accept him, because mm-hmm. they have a veil over their eyes, they could see and understand the truth that yep. was yeah, that's right. And John's going to show us that veil is no other than a love of other things more than the sun. And so it's punishable. It's not that it wasn't clear. It's not that it wasn't obvious. It's light. Light is obvious. Light is visible. Things they 
hated the light because they loved the darkness, is what John will tell us. And, um, so, really exposed that John's going to give us such a portrait of the depravity of man in this, in this gospel, which shows us why he gives us such a portrait of sovereign, divine grace, which saves us our own hope. I think that's the application I'd take away. Thank God. If you have any of this receiving of Christ in your heart, you didn't do that. You were born of God. He did that to you. That's the decisive cause of your faith. Thank him for it. Give thanks. And, um, you, can, you can kind of see this example in um, people's testimonies. thank you for your word it's clear and uh, we have no excuse help us Lord um, Lord not to just be content with yeah I believe but press on to believe more and more and embrace Christ more and more as he is revealed love you thank you prepare us for the service to come teach us open our eyes show us Christ we pray we love you in Jesus name Amen